0: Be seated. Well, good morning. Glad to see everybody that's here with us in person. And those who are online, I can't see you, but welcome. We're glad to have you with us. Uh, as Ken said earlier, we're thrilled, thrilled to have you with us. Um, I, I woke up this morning, and uh, I've been traveling this week. Some of you know that um, I was in uh, Hattiesburg, Mississippi with my mom and stepdad, and my stepdad had open heart surgery. Uh, they did triple bypass, and so his name's Larry. If you'd continue to pray for him, please. He's experiencing some AFib uh, during the recovery, but they're hoping he may be able to come home today. And so we'll be praying for him and my mom, Sandy, as they uh, continue to recover and, and go through that uh, lengthy recovery process. It was interesting um, because apparently his doctors are really well known because uh, there would be all these commercials, heart-healthy commercials on TV and Generally, one of his doctors was in those commercials talking, and so um, it was really interesting. Um, anyway, so woke up this morning and discovered it's Valentine's Day, uh, so that's cool. Um, it's on a Sunday, which my focus usually on Sundays is Sunday, right? So, uh, but hey, I had an idea. In case you woke up today and you maybe were meaning to go out later and get something for that special someone, I heard that they have these new pillows that are made out of corduroy. Yeah, they're really making headlines everywhere. <laughs> anyway. It's enough of that, right? Yeah, I need a drummer. Uh, so, so, I want to, I <laughs> this morning as we begin... Um, thank you again for, for continuing to pray for my family. But, uh, what we believe, oh, let me say one other thing. Javen, our son who's at college has COVID-19. So if you would continue to pray for him as well, he's got asthma. And so pray for him and, and, and for us to just, uh, uh, trust the Lord with that. But anyway, so moving on, you know, what we believe about the Bible is really key to our faith. It really is. It's key to understanding the gospel as the Bible reveals it to us. You know, how authoritative is the Bible? What does it say about God? What does it say about us? Do we trust it? Can we rely on it? And these are all questions we need to explore. And if you're interested in going further on some of these questions, I have a little book I want to recommend called Why Trust the Bible by Greg Gilbert. It's called Why Trust the Bible by Greg Gilbert. It's another little short book, and I believe I even have one in there that I'd be willing to loan to you um, if you'd like to read it. But these are all questions that we need to explore to help us better understand the Bible and better understand our faith. Now, today, I want to ask you another question related to that, and it may come off as strange at first. It may be something you've never thought about before, and that question is this. What did Jesus think about the Bible? Have you ever thought about that before? What did Jesus think about the Bible? What did he believe about it? Not what we assume about him or what we assume because we think we, uh, we understand what the Bible is, but what did Jesus himself believe and teach about the Scriptures? It's what we're going to dive into this morning. Excuse me. Russ Bush, who was a seminary professor, said this on this issue. He said, The issue of biblical authority is ultimately a question of Christological identity. What you think about Jesus, in other words, will ultimately influence what you think about your Bible. Your theology of the living word, that's Jesus, and the written word, the Bible, go hand in hand. So that's what's going to drive us this morning. Lord willing, we're going to take a look at what Jesus believed about the Bible and then see if we're with him in this or if maybe we've bought into some religious or legalistic or lawless ideas along the way. So would you bow your head and pray with me and then we're going to dive right in. Uh, Father God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for those who are here, those who are watching online. Um, God, we just pray you'd protect everyone from the cold, that that, uh, uh, everyone would stay warm, that furnaces would keep working, and uh, that people would uh, be able to be uh, safe and and just experience a a time of rest today, resting in you and and worshiping you, God. Pray for uh, the relationships as we think about Valentine's Day and people celebrating the love for each other. Pray that those would be strong, that those would be built upon you. And, God, you would sustain us and help us to love people the way that you love people, Jesus. God, I just pray this morning for this sermon. Um, you know I'm tired. And I uh, just pray my voice would hold out. Pray that you would speak clearly through your word to your people. God, I trust you to work even in spite of me. God, this is about you. It's for you. It's not about me. Uh, it's, it's for you. It's about you, Jesus. We give that to you this morning. Uh, just, just work big here, Jesus, and it's in your name I pray. Amen. We're going to be continuing in Matthew chapter 5 as we continue to walk through the Sermon on the Mount. This is our several-month-long study through this. And we're going to be in Matthew 5, beginning in verses 17 through 20, if you want to flip open or scroll to that. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to the sections that are coming up. And uh, we're going to look at how these are directly related. So Matthew 5:17 through20. "Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. There's some heavy stuff in there about Jesus' understanding of the word, what he believed about the word, and what some warnings for those who would teach the word. And we're going to break those down into four individual points. The first one being that the scriptures are about Jesus. And this is, I've got verses listed next to the main points so you can see kind of what what verse corresponds with where we're at. And, uh, but the scriptures are about Jesus. This, once you learn this, um, that you can look for Jesus on every page. No, not every page is specifically talking about Jesus, but um, there's references, there's foreshadowing, there's, there's the entire narrative of Scripture is about Jesus. And so Jesus says in verse 17 that he didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill, but he came to fulfill them. So I want to look at this in two ways, okay? Jesus accomplished and Jesus fulfilled. So that which Jesus accomplished and that which he fulfilled. And I think we have to kind of deal with both of those. So uh, just to take them both kind of at once is the Greek word that's used the, that we translate to fulfill, um, it refers, and I'm not going to worry about telling you what the actual Greek word is. If you want, we can talk about that later. But, um, uh, but it refers to carrying something out, Jesus, he he performed or he upheld, he carried out all that was required by the law and he did all of the things predicted about him in the prophets. So not only did he carry out the law or be completely obedient, live it out, but he also did everything, carried out everything and accomplished everything that the prophets said he would accomplish. Jesus is the fullest expression of the Law and the Prophets. And when we talk about the Law and the Prophets, the Law primarily would have been the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, and then you have the Prophets. So basically we're talking about the Old Testament here, okay? So Jesus is the fullest expression of what the Law said as well as what the Prophets are talking about. Now his teachings were new. They were striking in their contrast um, compared to what the religious leaders of the day taught and did. In uh, John uh, v- chapter 7 verse 46, uh, it says, the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. What Jesus was teaching was, was shocking. It, it caused people to kind of maybe stand there like, I can't believe he's saying these things. Jesus wants them to know that there's no break There's no break, there's no disconnect between his teaching and the law. They should not assume that he came to destroy the law, but rather he's the fullest expression of the law and the prophets. He is, in fact, the Word made flesh. John 1, 1 and 2 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And if you skip forward a few verses to verse uh, John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus clearly states the purpose for His coming, that He's to fulfill the Scriptures. He never meant to set them aside. He was rather bringing them to fruition, All scripture, the Bible, the whole thing is a testimony about Christ. It's God's word revealing himself to us in Jesus. This is why I have a real problem whenever any modern, well-known teacher, and this has happened in the last few years, says, we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. No, we don't. Because if you lose that, you're going to lose all of the law and the prophets of which Jesus is the fulfillment of. You can't do that. You can't throw part of it away. And there's going to be some severe warnings later on for those who would do something like that. In John chapter 5, verse 39, it says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. That's Jesus talking. See, so the scriptures, bear witness about him. And he would go on and do this. John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. He's, he's praying to the Lord. In Luke chapter 24, verse 25 through 27, I know we got a lot of scripture and we're bouncing around fast. It says this though. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. This is from one of my favorite stories, actually, in the New Testament, is after Jesus is resurrected and there's the guys on the road, to, his followers that are on the road to Emmaus, and he comes up and they don't recognize him, so he, this is the resurrected Christ, and he's walking along with them. And he's talking to them, and he, they're like, don't you know all well, these things that have happened to Jerusalem? He's like, what things? You know, tell me about what's just happened. You know? And so they tell him. And he, te- he <laughs> and he goes along with them, even acts like he's going to go farther when they stop. And then they say, no, stay with us and talk. But what I love about that is it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, the law and the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So he was showing them, even then, that these things were all about him. They were all pointing to him. A little farther on, Luke 24, verses 44 through 45, it says Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Most of you who are reading, so I don't know who all exactly is doing this, but if you are reading through the Bible chronologically this year, most of you are in the Old Testament somewhere, unless you're reading really, really fast. Really fast, okay? And most of you are probably somewhere in the neighborhood of Leviticus. And so you're getting into all, all the Levitical laws but Jesus Christ is the theme of the entire Bible. And when you look at those things, he says, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets, when you read those things, read them with a mind for, this is telling me about Jesus. What is it telling me about Jesus here? Christ is the theme of the entire Bible. He's the main character. He's the hero of the story, if you will. It all points to him. There was a, an anonymous poem written years ago. It goes like this. It's called, I find my Lord in the book. And yes, I know I'm falling into that whole three points in a poem thing. Uh, <coughs> stereotypical path, although I have four points I would just point out. I find my Lord in the book. It says, I find my Lord in the Bible, wherever I chance to look, He's the theme of the Bible, the center and heart of the book. He is the rose of Sharon. He is the lily fair. Whenever I open my Bible, the Lord of the book is there. He, at the book's beginning, gave to the earth its form. He is the ark of shelter bearing the brunt of the storm. The burning bush of the desert, the budding of Aaron's rod. Wherever I look in the Bible, I see the Son of God. The ram upon Mount Moriah, the ladder from earth to sky, the scarlet cord in the window, and the serpent lifted high. The smitten rock in the desert, the shepherd with staff and crook, the face of my Lord I discover whenever I open the book. He is the seed of the woman, the Savior virgin born. He's the son of David whom men rejected with scorn. His garments of grace and of beauty, the stately Aaron deck, He is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, Lord of eternal glory, whom John the Apostle saw, light of the golden city, lamb without spot or flaw, bridegroom coming at midnight for whom the virgins look. Wherever I open my Bible, I find my Lord in the book. So when you read the word, look for Jesus there. Secondly, about what Jesus believes about the Bible. The word of God is perfect and endures. We see this verse 18. The word of God is perfect and it endures. In verse 18, we have this statement. This statement that really keys in on the personal authority of Jesus. Jesus' teaching had authority because of who he was and is. Now, I'm going to go back to a little more Greek here. The Greek word that's translated as truly, or depending on your translation, assuredly, or I tell you the truth, or I assure you, is the Greek word, amen. Now, when we see this, know that in the Greek, it was an alert. It would have alerted the initial Greek readers that the following words, the words following that, were authoritative and highly, highly important, okay? Now, again, depending on what your translation says, this next thing, we get into the jot and the tittle, right? Which are funny words, I get it, right? And they've honestly made it into our, our modern English language, language somewhat. So we have a bit, of a, a, a bit of a context for it. But it says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law, until all is accomplished. Now, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. You may, yours may say jot and tittle. I think those are probably the most common ways people have referred to this. But the reference of of jot is, it's actually a reference to the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Okay, so it's a reference to something very, the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the tittle is actually the smallest part of a hebrew letter think think in our english language it would be the thing that makes the difference that extension that makes the difference between a g a c and a q right it's the smallest part of a letter so jesus is saying not even the smallest letter not even the smallest mark will pass from the law in luke 16 17 we have a corresponding verse says but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. See, Jesus here, he's affirming the reliability of the scriptures as well as the truthfulness of them, and he's doing so in the strongest possible language. Not even a little mark of it will pass away. John 10.35 says, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken. Scripture cannot be broken, folks. It's a quote from H.C.G. Moyle, and it says, Jesus absolutely trusted the Bible, and though there are in it things inexplicable and intricate that have puzzled me so much, I am going, not in a blind sense, but reverently to trust the book because of him. Okay? To word this in a much more simple way, a pastor I once served under said, I'm not going to discount something just because I'm not smart enough to understand it. If the Bible says it, it's got to work some way. We trust the Bible because of Jesus, not because we understand every little bit, because there are some weird little commands in the Old Testament. Okay? There are some weird little ones in there. And Jesus is the fulfillment of everything in the law and the prophets. So we trust, the word is we trust Jesus. Third, the Bible, Jesus believed this, should be both taught and obeyed. Now, we all know some people who think the Bible should be taught, but we look at their lives and we're like, hmm, I wonder if they realize that it not only should be taught, but it should also be obeyed. See, the authority of the Bible applies to even the smallest details. To break even a single command was, carried serious consequences. Look at at this verse. Look at verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. To teach others... So first of all, to break one of the least of the... To break the commands of God is a serious thing. But to teach others to do the same has terrible consequences as well. Teaching that any command of God is no big deal, that is in fact a very big deal. (laughs) And you'll hear people that will talk about things because they want to justify something that is popular in modern culture or they want to justify something in their life that they want to be okay with God when he clearly is not okay with it. To relax any of those, to, to treat something like, eh, it's not really a big deal, is a very big deal. James 3.1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. There is a weight that I carry as a pastor. I get up here every week, or just about every week. Uh, I get up here and I preach the Word of God. And I talk to you guys during the week. You come into the office, we talk, you maybe ask me about an issue you've got or something you've got going on. I do my best to honor the commands of God. And to not teach you or say to you that, you know what, it's probably okay. If the word of God says it's not okay. Now, ultimately, that is not up to me to change that or make you feel better about your sin. Okay, if I'm making you feel good about your sin, you should fire me. March me out the door. Keeping the Lord's commands is not a small thing. Now, I'm not preaching legalism. We're going to get to that in just a minute, okay? Not where I preach legalism, okay? Where I preach against it, all right? But keeping the Lord's commands is not a small thing. We cannot, look, we cannot, someone who wants to keep God's commands, the actual commands that Jesus gives us, okay? We can't call those people legalists for just wanting to obey the Lord. Now, when you take that, and you establish extra rules for yourself, and then you apply those to others, then we can call you a legalist, and we'll get there in a minute. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You know, I love it. uh, Jesus is very clear on some things, and some of the things where he's very clear are the hardest. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So what if I'm not keeping his commandments? Does that mean I don't love him? That'll put the fear of the Lord in you. John 15, 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So Jesus' followers are to obey God. Hmm. I mean, that seems obvious, right? Right? But we have people everywhere. We know people, maybe people in the church, maybe that, that, that claim to follow Jesus but refuse to obey his commands. And maybe not all of them, but the ones that are too hard or make them uncomfortable or put something between them and family or something like that. Like that's... 1 John three twenty four says, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. And 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Scripture is more than a guidebook for how to live life. Look, there was a song years ago. I, in fact, I it's on a playlist, or, or I played it in PE the other day. when I, was, I play music for my kids in PE, okay? Uh, some of them are in here, and they know this, right? And there's this song that was real popular in the late 90s, uh, Basic Instructions, right? It was by Burlap to Kashmir. And Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth is an acronym for B-I-B-L-E Bible, right? Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. I'm not going to sing it for you. Um, Although there is a really cool guitar. Okay, I did sing it. All right. But anyway, you can look it up at home. Here's the thing. The Bible is not just basic instructions before leaving earth. It's not just a guidebook for how to live life. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is also, it also, though, acts like guiding tracks on which Christian life is driven. It's not just a how-to book. It's not just five ways to have a happy marriage. Okay? Five ways to have a better friendship with your mom. Okay? That's not what this is. When we trim it down to that, we do a disservice to it, and we neglect what the whole of Scripture is actually about and for. Will it help us live a godly life? Absolutely. 100%. Okay, But it's not simply just some kind of human being operational manual. That makes it too simple. Too simplistic. And number four. The focus of the Bible is on the heart and spirit of the law, not the law itself. The heart and spirit of the law. Verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and Pharisees were seen in that day as very righteous groups. They were looked at with respect, with admiration by the people. To hear a statement like this verse, like at verse 20, to hear that would have been shocking. It would have been scandalous to the hearers to hear that your righteousness needs to surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. Because in their mind, they couldn't even attain that. How were they going to surpass that? How were they supposed to do that? Well, first, let's look at who these two groups were, okay? And I'm going to use summaries of these two groups uh, that, that Charles Quarles did, and he summed it up very well. The scribes were highly trained experts in the interpretation and application of the law. They normally began their training as children, and they continued their studies until formal ordination at age 40. I think you went to school a long time. The scribes were greatly respected by most Jews of the day. When scribes walked down the streets in their distinctive robes, others would stand in their honor greeting them with titles like rabbi, father, or master. Hosts typically offered the scribes the seats of honor at banquets, right? They got the special seat. Now, the Pharisees were members of a movement in Judaism that was committed to meticulous observance of the law. So, you have the scribes who are studying the law, students of the law, teaching the law. You got the Pharisees who are observing the law meticulously. They particularly emphasize matters such as tithing, ritual purity, and obeying the Sabbath. Scribes and Pharisees belong to two distinct groups serving as a scribe was a profession the pharisees on the other hand were a jewish sect some scribes were pharisees and the pharisees likely chose their leaders from among the scribes the scribes and pharisees shared in common a commitment to what the study and observance of the law so when the people here you have to your righteousness has to surpass these dudes Scandalous. That's a tall order. It's like me looking at you guys and saying, your basketball skills need to surpass Michael Jordan. Because he's the greatest. LeBron got nothing on him. Anyway, uh, that was free. <laughs> and there was no, they were like, there's no, we can't do that. Imagine. The scribes who weren't ordained, they'd studied and were formal ordination at age 40. Imagine you're 45 and you're like, how, I can't get to there. I can't get to there, even if I had another 40 years, which they may not have. So, when you look at everything they had, oh, by the way, they had 248 regulations that they were required to obey and thought other people should obey. Oh, and in addition to 248 regulations, there were 365 prohibitions, things they prohibited, that were to fence and protect the law. So it wasn't just that they were trying to obey the law. They tried to obey the law here, and then they built a barrier, a wall around the, or a fence or a wall around the law, so that they didn't even get close enough to the law to break the law. They were clear out here. And then they assigned that to everybody else, and everybody else had to obey that. That's legalism. But their righteousness focused on outward activity alone. It was only skin deep. It had nothing to do with the heart. It was only the commands and the regulations and what they did out here. See, if verse 19 warns us of lawlessness, of not obeying the law, then verse 20 warns of legalism. The righteousness of a Christian must be more than skin deep. It's a surpassing righteousness. This is how they surpass the righteousness of these two groups, by not focusing only on external legal adherence, but by having pure spirits. Remember the Beatitudes? Their motivations, their desires were to be different. The Beatitudes explain the righteous living of a believer in Christ. Not what you do to become a believer in Christ, but the righteous living of someone who is a believer in Christ, enabled by the Spirit. That only comes when someone has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. When they've grieved over their sin, when they've repented and called out to Jesus as their only hope of salvation, it must start with the repentance of sin and believing the gospel message that Jesus, all God, all man, came from heaven, born as a virgin, lived a perfect, sinless life, a law-fulfilling life, and willingly died on the cross in the place of sinners as a substitute. The wrath of God that we deserve being poured out on Him as our substitute, as our substitutionary sacrifice, and that He bodily rose from the grave after three days and appeared to at least 500 people before ascending into heaven, where He sits at God's right hand and waits for the day of His return for His people. And those who believe this, whom He has given the sweet gift of repentance, Are adopted into the family of God and get to be joint heirs with Christ, they get Christ's righteousness. That's the exchange, the great exchange. He takes their sin, took our sin on the cross, and in turn bestows his righteousness upon us. So, what does this surpassing righteousness that goes beyond skin deep and beyond the scribes and the Pharisees, what does that look like? Here's one scholar's accurate. Fourfold description of this surpassing righteousness. Number one, it focuses on the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. Someone who is living out this surpassing righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, so actual Christianity, is focusing on the spirit of the law, Not the letter of the law. In other words, they're not looking for loopholes. They're not trying to see how close we can get to sin. You know, I was a youth pastor for 15 years. I know I say that a lot, but I have a lot of stories from that. I was a youth pastor for 15 years. And one of the big things with students, I I heard a guy say, what do students want to learn about? What are the things you teach students, students want you to to teach about? They want to hear about sex and end times. Okay. And will there be sex during the end times? Okay, that's the thing teenagers, back then we said that's what teenagers want to learn about. Well, here's the deal. When you teach on on physical issues and intimacy and relationships, what's the question teenagers always wanted to know? How far is too far? Where's the line? How far? And it wasn't so that they could remain, they weren't asking that so they could remain pure. They wanted to know, how far can I get to that line? How close can I get to sin without it actually being sin? How much can I enjoy and do without it actually being sin? And it wasn't about them trying to please God. It was about them trying to enjoy themselves and yet somehow try to, in their mind, keep themselves out of hell, I think. And here's the problem How far is too far? And we do that too with stuff in our lives. Here's the problem with that that is the wrong question. The question is not how far is too far, the question is how can I please God? How can I remain pure? See, we need to focus on the spirit of the law, the attitude of the heart, the things of internal, not the letter of the law. See, the Pharisees thought, and, and I'm, I keep coming back to like lust and fornication here, but 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 the Pharisees believed that, hey, I could look at a woman and you can think whatever you want as long as I don't touch her. But Jesus came and he flipped that whole thing on his head, said even if you look at someone with lust... In your heart, you've committed adultery with them in your heart. If you look at someone with lust, you've committed adultery with them in your heart. And he turned it. It wasn't just obeying the physical commands. It had to do with the heart. With the, that, that's with the spirit of the law, not just the letter of the law. See, they were obeying heartlessly. Number two, it focuses on internal rather than on external. focuses on the internal rather than the external to make sure the attitudes, the desires of the heart are lined up with God. Here's the thing. If the inside is right, that is going to translate to the outside. If the inside of the tree is rotten, you're going to get rotten fruit or no fruit. If the inside is right, why? Because our heart, that's where like the evil things we say and do, that's where they come from. And so we're trying to, the the Pharisees were trying to act right out here and it had no effect on their inside. They could still be rotten as all get out on the inside. We focus on the internal rather than the external. And, well, pastor, but you're talking about obeying commands. That's external. Yeah, but it comes from a place within your heart that is right with God not just obeying out here. God's more concerned about who you are than what you do. He is concerned about what you do, okay? He's more concerned about who you are, first. Third, this kind of surpassing righteousness focuses on more important matters of the law rather than minor points of law. Well, but pastor, I thought you just said that You know, you can't, even the smallest thing we can't write off. No, I'm not talking about writing it off. Here's what I'm talking about. Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So he's not telling them to not tithe their mint and dill and cumin, okay? He's not saying not to. But what they were doing is they were making sure they got all their spices right while not being merciful to their neighbor. They were focusing on the minor things and completely ignoring the major things. Fourth, Surpassing Righteousness focuses on the Christian displaying divine character. Focuses on the Christian displaying, displaying divine character. Being Christ-like. Being Christ-like. Not being a religious ruler over the people to tell them what they can and can't do and judge them for it, but to be Christ-like, to display the character of Christ. Where could we find out what that character looks like? Hmm. Oh, wait, we, we just talked about it in the Beatitudes a few weeks ago, right? Huh. It's almost like this was all written together on purpose. Yep, and it's all about Jesus. And that's the whole point. You see, it's, it's not, and what he's saying here about surpassing the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. It's not about beating the scribes and the Pharisees at their own game. It's not even the same game. It's not like like we're playing chess and they're playing checkers. No, it's not like that at all. It's It's like the difference between playing chess and driving a race car. It's a completely different concept of righteousness altogether. And the legalists didn't get it. And you know what? They still don't. They still don't. Because righteousness is not tied to our outward actions alone, but to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Who are you surrendering to and serving? What you believe about the gospel will put you on this track and tell whether you're just playing a game or whether you're living out divine character. So here's the question. What do you believe about the Bible? And that is the question I want you to ponder the rest of the day, really. What do you believe about the Bible? I want to suggest I can look at your life and tell what you really believe. See, a lot of times people, and this was, teenagers are terrible at it, so I had a lot of experience with it as, as a youth pastor, but adults do it too. And they will give the appearance of believing a certain thing, maybe even mentally ascribe to something, verbally tell you they believe a certain thing. But when I watch your life, I can tell what you really believe. And you guys know this is true because we all have people like this in our lives, whether it's dealing with Christianity or whether it's dealing with climate change or some other issue in our culture right now, right? We, we all, and I didn't mean that to be political, it's just the thing that came to mind, all right? Um, so, did you guys know how I feel about that stuff? Um, whatever issue it is, we know when people, and Jesus called them, right? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You hypocrites. So we can watch your life, so you can look at your life, and by your life, you can ask yourself, what do I really believe about the Bible? What do I really believe about Jesus? Because those two things are linked. You know, for many years, I served and attended Southern Baptist churches. I've yet to find a better or more complete statement written by men that explains the Bible's truth and reliability than their particular section of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. It's their statement of faith. And the document says this, and I'm going to read it because I think it it's, just hits the, nose, it, it's the nail on the head. The Holy Bible was written by men, divinely inspired, and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end and truth, without any mixture of error for, that, for its matter. Therefore, all Scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world, the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All scripture is a testimony to Christ who is himself the focus of divine revelation. I thought everything in there, as as I looked through that, It's reflecting what Jesus said about the word and about himself. And I just love the way that they, that's a lot, it's a lot to chunk into one paragraph. But it reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the word the true center of Christian union. And that it's the standard by which we must try everything. It is the standard by which we measure. I want to close with a story told by I.R. Scarborough. He was speaking of a guy named B.H. Carroll, who was uh, the president of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and then Scarborough was going to succeed him, okay? So you need to know that as I relate this story. He says, B.H. Carroll, the greatest man I ever knew. Again, this is Scarborough, not me. I didn't know B.H. Carroll. I probably died before I was born, Okay. Uh, As he was about to die a few days before he died, expecting me as he wanted me to succeed him as president of the seminary. I was in his room one day and he pulled himself up by my chair with his hands and looked me in the face. There were times when he looked like he was 40 feet high. And he looked at my face and said, oh boy, on this hill, orthodoxy, the old truth is making one of its last stands and I want to deliver to you a charge. And I do it in the blood of Jesus Christ, he said. You will be elected president of this seminary. I want you, if there ever comes heresy in your faculty, to take it to your faculty. If they won't hear you, take it to the trustees. If they won't hear you, take it to the conventions that appointed them. If they won't hear you, take it to the common Baptists. They will hear you. And he said, I charge you in the name of Jesus Christ to keep it lashed to the old gospel of Jesus Christ. As long as I have influence in that institution by the grace of God, I will stand by the old book. What a strong statement. It's a statement that our lives should be defined by, that our church should stand on. That we stand on the authority and accuracy and truthfulness of the word of God. It is the word about Jesus. He is the word made flesh. And we as a church must stand upon the word of God because we live in an age, and there have always been things that have tried to come against the word of God, but we live in an age where it appears to be violently assaulted. I don't mean violence like you know, violence, violence, but but that there there are assaults on the basic basic doctrines of the Bible coming through various uh, modes, academia, and just culture in general, and different places. And it's why it's very important for me that we understand things. Like, like I want like when I teach that I want us to understand like uh, the, the deeper things of Scripture, the, uh, the, the deeper theologies, the doctrines, the characters and attributes of God, character and attributes of God. Because we stand on the authority of Scripture, and we must stand on that hill. So here's the question: what do you believe about the Bible? Does it match what Jesus believes about it? And if you look up and realize that what you believe about the Bible doesn't match what Jesus believes about the Bible, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? The thing is, I said this earlier, you can watch someone's life and tell what they believe about the Bible. It's not about the outward action alone, but the outward action will be driven by what's in the heart. So I can watch your life and tell what you really believe. So here's the question this morning. I'm going to ask the musicians to come up and lead us in one final song. Do you, does your heart need a truth adjustment? If this morning you've looked at some of this and you thought, man, I've really believed wrongly about the Bible, then I would just say repent and believe the good news. Trust Jesus. Because he died for your wrong belief too trust him, repent, and believe the good news of the gospel. He is the only way to a true surpassing righteousness. Would you stand up and pray with me this morning? God, as we come to this time where we uh, we have opportunity to respond by worshiping through song, to respond by submitting our hearts to you, God, I pray that if there are those who are watching online or here in person who have some kind of wrong belief about you and they've had that rocked this morning by your word. God, I pray that you would uh, guide them to repentance, that sweet gift, and help them believe the good news, help them believe the truth. God, help us as a church to stand on the rock of your word, to not be moved from the old book, to not let uh, the culture or the waves of of any persecution that we may someday face or anything to come against, that it would not ever knock us off of our stance on your word. That you'd help us trust you no matter what it looks like around us. And God, we recognize there are many people in Dixon and in this area who don't know you, Jesus, and I pray that the truth in your word would compel us to share that truth with them and to see them come to know you, Jesus, because we recognize you are the only way to the Father. You are the only way to heaven. You are the only way to true right standing before God, to true righteousness. Speak to our hearts. Change us because we've been with you, Jesus. It's in your name I pray, amen.